Welcome to Classical Etc., a show that dives into the philosophy, culture, and heart of classical education. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon. All right, well, thank you all for being here. A few weeks ago, we talked about the intellectual life. We had such a good time talking about it that we thought we would double back and talk more specifically about the great books. So, Martin, what is a great book? And not just name a great book, but the definition of <laughs> a great book. Uh, a great book is a book that improves your soul. Hmm. That was so succinct. As always. <laughs> <laughs> I did that just for you. Thank you. So elaborate on that. In, in what <laughs> sense does it improve your soul? Oh, there it goes. I know I appreciated it being succinct, but now I want the long explanation. <laughs> well, I think it, it's um, it's one that tells you something fundamental about reality, about, you know, truth, goodness, and beauty, and, and, and does it in, in an incredible way. Oh. So then name an example of a, a great book that comes to your mind first when you're thinking of these are the great books. What's one that you think is just uncontestable? Um, I, I guess maybe Anna Karenina. I mean, it's great both in quality and quantity. Yeah, <laughs> it's a very yeah. big book. I mean, no, that that's you know, <clears throat> Tolstoy is you know considered by many people to be the greatest novelist that ever wrote, and uh, arguably Anna Karenina is probably his greatest novel. Um, and I think you see all the traits you would expect of of a great book in Anna Karenina. I mean, one one way of uh, of defining something is is. Uh, you, you were ax, acting, asking for what, what you call a denotative definition, an abstract definition. Another way of defining something is a connotative definition, that a great book is like that thing there. Sure. So I think, I think if you had a book that you were going to do that with, it was a great book. So, well, it's like Anna Karenina. So Tanya, how would you define a great book? What did you say? <laughs> he said it's a book I, that improves the soul. Oh, She's yeah, very like nice that. and that's, esoteric. That's poetic. Yeah. Um, I would say it's a book, it's characterized by a book that has been around for so long <laughs> that it's still in publication <laughs> because it's, but sometimes you have to think about why. I mean, I'm always confused about why. Like, why Shakespeare? Um, my son came in. He was in the seventh grade and they were reading, Cheryl Lowe was his teacher and they were reading Julius Caesar. And he came home one day and he said, well, I don't understand why this book is still in print. And I said, because it's, <laughs> he's, a, he's a great um, author and he playwright. And when something is that good, it stays in print. And he said, well, he's got monasteries in this play and everybody knows they weren't in Julius Caesar's time. So, I mean, he was just dumb. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like Nick. I know. And I said, well, you don't have the right to judge what's a great book yet. You're in the seventh grade. Is a great book a book that Nick does not like? A great book is, (laughs) yes. That's one way to define it. Yes, (laughs) that could work. But, you know, how do we judge what a great book is it's been there and it does it touches it does touch our soul but not not all great books touch my soul not i'm speaking specifically right now of the great book that i'm reading that is not touching my soul i'm thinking why i'm like nick and julius caesar <laughs> well, i want to be it? careful in the way i say this but um 
Is it because of the book or your soul? It must be my soul. I just am not getting it, I think. I think it's me. Well, it's got to be, clear, be me. You're I know it has to be The Divine Comedy, and you're not having a great experience with it. I, right, and I wasn't going to admit that, Shane. Well, you can't talk about it on the pod without mentioning yes, it. Yes, so I am. Is there something that you don't like about Hell? There, um. Yeah, everything. <laughs> everything. Um, I mean, the first few cantos were interesting, but now I feel like I'm just like going round and round this, doing the same thing with just different sins. <laughs> but it's the same thing. Like why? I feel like he needed an editor. I, I, I think I, I think you're hitting on something actually that's important to note is sort of the, the, the great books are, are sort of crowdsourced and whether they're great or not. And so that allows the book that doesn't touch the individual to rise as great because it touches most people. Right. Um, and I do think if you would attend Kyle's meetings, you might get more out Which of it. Which I did attend the first and one. And the second one was good. I only attended the second one. It was very Well, good. the second one I was out of town for, but I will attend the third one. I'm not giving up, but I have really slowed down because I just feel like I'm stuck in the... Referring to a meeting that we uh, occasionally have with one of our Highlands Latin School oh, sorry. instructors. Yes. Thought I'd try to explain this that. This has become yeah. two conversations. <laughs> and I'm in solidarity with you. I am also trying to read Divine Comedy for this group that we have, and I also have not had a great experience with it. This is my second time reading it actually third time reading oh it and goodness. i am and i still don't love it i think paradise lost is way better okay just for all those uh, listeners um who <laughs> now have been dissuaded from reading the divine comedy uh <laughs> a book that we promote people reading um i think probably a help on this as someone who's taught it before is you know we use a pretty good translation unlike john charty's translation that that we use that i think you're probably reading it is and i would I would strongly recommend when people read the Divine Comedy to use Dorothy Sayers' commentaries. Now, I don't like her translation, but her commentaries are brilliant, and that will help bring hmm. some of the meaning. Of I think I have those at home. I, I think, Martin, though, I don't think they're dissuading people from reading the Divine Comedy, <laughs> but rather, if your experience is like this, mm -hmm. you know, you're not alone, right? I mean, right. that's one thing. Great books are daunting. Mm -hmm. Right. They are daunting, but I really enjoy most great books, mm -hmm. but I'm not enjoying the Divine Comedy. Maybe that will change. Maybe Kyle can bring it to life for me. But it does make me question what am I missing? I don't question whether it's a great book, because like you said, obviously, it's still in print. So many people smarter than me think that it's worth reading and rereading and rereading. But so the problem is with me. I do understand that. But so so is the definition of a great book something that is, um, I can't think of the word. Well, is I, it universal. Is universal. it universal or is it something that can change from year to year or society to society? Well, I think well, it's helpful that we're talking about the ways that this category of great book can be somewhat elastic because that's a part of the joy of trying to talk about it is that we all in some ways approach it from different angles. But at the same time, there is general consensus around certain titles like the Divine Comedy that not only do most people enjoy it, but it also challenges those of us who are having a hard time to access it to instead of other books that are not considered great books, we would probably have thrown out by now and not be on our third time trying That's to read right. it. Well, the mm -hmm. other thing too is I think a, a, a great book um, is one you have to, well, 
Greatness in general is something that you have to cultivate an interest in. It's like food, you know. Now, I know people who love oysters. They love oysters. Um, we were at a conference and they made me try oysters. And I said, um, and they, and then they look at me and say, well, did you like it? And I think, I, I think I am. I think I'm going to try boogers next. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was so visual. <laughs> I just can't acquire a taste for raw oysters. And I'm, I have concluded that I, if I wanted to, I probably could cultivate an interest and now I'd find them very good. I used to not like avocados, but I, you know, I tried them and I tried them a few times, didn't like, but then I did. And now I love avocados. So yeah, I think it's a lot like food. Mm -hmm. You have to really good food. is not something you enjoy the first mm -hmm. time. Wasn't that your experience with uh, Moby Dick? Didn't you say you didn't like it at first and then? Oh, probably. Yeah. I mean, well, I think I tried to read it in high school or something and I okay. did not like it. And after having, you know, after, after learning better how to appreciate things, uh, literature. Um, then I went back and, and then I had to teach it. So I, I read it and studied it. And, and when you, I think that's, a, that's the beauty of teaching too, is that you, you, you have to really understand the book. You have to, to read it well. And then you have to rearticulate in your mind to students why it's good. And when you do that, you appreciate it more. So, Paul, same question coming back around. What is your definition of a great book? Uh, well, I mean, the major thing that was going through my head was the, it was this universality, which I'm glad we hashed that out before it got to me. <laughs> um, but I do think it it has to speak universally whether we get it or not, right? Mm -hmm. So that's that's an important point. So it should whether I mean it's always going to be contextualized in a certain culture, right? Like reading Jane Austen, you kind of need to understand that era and why they interact the way they do, right? Um, but still, that should speak to all human persons of the truths that are in that, right? Um, whether it's enjoyable or not, whether it captivates you or not, um, and typically, I think they they rise, they get that impetus to be to be driven towards a great book. Because when they are released, it that the culture that it's released in, right, just they they uh, it resonates with them, right. So it resonates with them because it at that time it's a popular thing. Shakespeare was popular, right? Um, he wasn't you know relegated to, to to academics when he published, right? But because he was popular, then people kept passing it down from generation to generation, and we realized. It, it, because it had struck that that soul chord, right? To go back to Martin's thing. So, yeah, I, and you had the you know the sort of three different levels of appreciation of Shakespeare, which are uh, you know physically illustrated by the way the Globe Theater was set up. You know, you had the groundlings, the the you know the 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 lower end of people uh, who who appreciated it just purely for its spectacle. And then you had people who, you know, as, as you mm -hmm. rose in the levels were more sophisticated viewers and they were able to appreciate it at other levels. And I think that's one of the great things about Shakespeare is really, if our culture was not so degraded now, uh, it, he would appeal to a lot of different kinds of people. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we've dumbed everybody down and and they don't even attempt Shakespeare in most schools anymore. And, and But that's not Shakespeare's <laughs> fault. It's our fault. I, I would like to throw out uh, maybe something that we could think about with regards to the great books is 
I think most great books, I would like to say all, but I don't want to go that far. I think most great books don't answer fully the question they're asking. I think they leave it up to the reader to wrestle with an idea. Sounds like you have a specific instance in mind. Well, Let's talk about The Count of Monte Cristo. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about The Count of Monte Cristo. Oh, wow. This is great when it's not brought up could, by me. I knew you um, could do that. Yeah. So, um, so what's left to the reader? What's left to the reader is to wrestle with the idea is if Dante's had did what he counseled um, Valentine and I forget who she marries at the end. Um, the, the, the young man and woman that he kind of sets off Morel's son, I think, mm-hmm. and Villefort's daughter. And he, he counsels them to wait and hope. And he basically says all good things come in this and waiting and hoping. And you realize that at the end of all of his schemes, he realizes he should have waited and hoped on Providence. But then that raises the question of would justice have been done? Was justice succeeded in what he did, right? And and him trying to 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 bring vengeance upon his enemies. Uh was was vengeance was was justice met, was justice succeeded? Um and would the world be better? And would Dantes be better if he had waited and hoped? See, I don't think there there was a question there. I thought it was very black and white at the end, and it didn't leave me thinking. I feel like he had figured that out, that he should have waited and hoped. So is your main point <laughs> that the question that the novel is asking is not answered in a black and white way, and that's why Tanya's response there. Is a critique of what you're saying, or, you, or do yeah, you think you I, agree with what Tanya is suggesting? No, I think I think that the um, how's it go on modum recipientis recipitor, right? So, so the mode of the in the mode of the recipient, it's received, right? I would like to say you're a very black and white person, uh, right? And so you read this and you go, oh, boom, there's my answer. That's what he right. Mean, that's what he. So meant. he presents it as a possibility, but I don't think great books pigeonhole you into this has to be it right that's true and and so you know somebody could read i remember initially reading the count of monte cristo and just loving the vengeance right it is so intricate it is Uh, every single one of these people deserve what they're getting um and you know i i could completely blow through because the, the the sort of the resolution is very small like you could blow right past that and go, oh, they got what they deserved, right? Um, if if you want to read it that I way, I think right? I read it. I was too old when I read it the first time. Oh, yeah. So I I'd already maybe, figured out that vengeance was, was I mean, never was the way. The, was the Lord's? <laughs> maybe the moral here is that you you know a, a great book is one that has that appeals to the widest variety of the modes of the recipient. Uh, it speaks to the most people, right? Uh, but hold, but hold on. So, uh, I mean, for, when he started taking revenge, I thought at that point this he this he's going down a terrible road. Well, yes, I understood yes. it, right? But I, it made me cringe. Well, so so he he went down a terrible road. I, I don't deny that. But, you, but are you saying that? I mean, I I was very sympathetic with his 
his I was sympathetic desire for with vengeance it, because but I thought it, it was, was just in its own way. But it was wrong. It was wrong for him to exact it. But I think that's kind of part of the whole. And, and this line. is and this is why I why I I'm just fascinated with the whole story is because somebody has to waiting and hoping is is a wonderful spiritual um, attitude. If you can get there. <laughs> but nothing happens without human agency, right? Right. And so where's the where's the line between needing – there was no way for him to get justice in the civil society he lived in. That's right. Right. So where does that human agency come in? And, you know, there, there would have been no justice for those people. Well, and another, that, another, that's the, the bigger question that, that, that book. Another thing about head. great literature is it addresses great themes. Right. So in a way, what kind of Monte Cristo addresses is the theme of predestination, free will. There's other uh, great books that, that address the problem of evil. There's a, there's usually some great theme that is being addressed by the story. And Paul, I think what you're speaking to is the way that a a great book is going to penetrate the subtlety and the nuance that that life's experience causes you to to learn about answering mm-hmm. these great questions. And so the the I, the great book that comes to my mind in this regard is Julius Caesar. That was already mentioned in the play. It's a book that confronts the question of duty over. Uh, what's more important, you know, the fellow man or duty and your, the answer is not clear cut, but it explores the different gray areas around those themes in such a insightful way that people of different generations in different eras have thought the villain was a different person and that the hero was the villain, depending on where they were situated. And that speaks to its incisive nature. So one question I want to ask you, Martin, is that it seems like eternal truth takes on greater power in narrative. Have you found that to be true? And how do you think that the great books demonstrate the power of storytelling? Well, I think, um, I mean, one of, one of the great things about casting something in a narrative mode is, is that, uh, you know, you can, you can read things that, that articulate truths to you plainly and directly in prose writing or whatever. But, but the thing that narrative does is it provides – narrative is the best context for seeing the meaning of things, not just the truth, but the meaning. You know, C.S. Lewis makes that distinction. He said the intellect is the organ of truth. The imagination is the organ of meaning. And Alistair McIntyre makes this point in, in the, the Philosopher in some of his writings is that it, it's this – the only way we can see ourselves as moral beings, which we essentially are – is to see ourselves in a story of some kind, the story of our lives or, or whatever. And so I, I think it, in, it because it, it has the power to, I mean, Jesus articulated truths, but he, he resorted to metaphors and imaginative expressions uh, um, that really better demonstrated what he was saying. You know, he didn't say the, he didn't say the, the Pharisees were, were, well, he he probably did say the Pharisees were evil, but but he 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 later says he says they're blind. I mean that that brings a whole another context to the situation. They just don't see, and pro- part of our problem as human beings in seeing the truth and seeing goodness and seeing beauty is because we're blind to it. So we need something to give us a vision, and this is what a story does. It makes it concrete, 
It puts it in the in the in the it, it, it tells you a story with these characters and these events that are are concrete and it incarnates truth. It incarnates goodness. It incarnates beauty. So it's not just an abstraction. It's something you can see and feel. Well, and that's because I mean, life is is the the whole struggle of life is the the incarnating of our principles, right? I mean, that's what we struggle with day in and day out. And that's why I've been on a Graham Greene and and even Wawkick is because they, especially Graham Greene, struggles with that. What's wh- Where's the intersection of my principles and the way I want to live and, and what actually happens in real life? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, he does that in a very explicit way, but I think every great book is, is struggling and, to do that. I mean, it, in... Um it, it uh, I mean, one of the ways, like, you take the problem of evil. Uh, the problem of evil, the problem of predestination, free will, these things, they don't have rational solutions. And yet, through an imaginative story, you can see the end. You can't define it. You can't, you know, box it, bottle it, but but you can see it. You know, if you, if you, if you read Cry the Beloved Country by Alan Payton, uh, that it deals with the problem of evil. And, and you can't extract some abstract principle out, but you can see the goodness even in that. Um, this is why when, when we, we have tragedies and this sort of thing, what do we resort to? We resort to some kind of narrative and some kind of song, really. Uh, you know, the Titanic sinks. There's like a hundred songs about the sinking of the Titanic. Why did we do that? Why do people do that? And then we got to make the TV movie. You know, that's our impulse. Our impulse is to contextualize it in some kind of narrative. That's why the when that school shooting in in uh, Connecticut a few years ago. What did people do? They went to church because they would have what had just happened contextualized in the great story that they were going to hear at church and singing hymns uh, about it. This is what we do. When we we face problems in our lives, as we look for a narrative context to give it meaning, those things give things meaning. So, Tony, a minute ago, Paul accused you of being very black and white. Yes. Um, can you believe that? I, I can't. So, <laughs> I can. do you do you agree you, <laughs> that truth through story is maybe even more powerful than just truth? Undiluted? I do. And I think anybody who is a reader would mm-hmm. know. I mean, there's so much more power in seeing. A, I'm going to go back to Monte Cristo because I don't think we finished it. <laughs> that Dante's. I, I think thought we that, finished it about halfway through. Sorry. <laughs> I think that he, you know, seeing him as a character that you were sympathetic to and seeing all the things that he did that I immediately thought this is not, he's not going, he's basically putting himself on the same level as the people who hurt him. I was too old when I read it the first time. If I'd read it when I was 20, I would have had a, probably a whole entire different feeling for it. But, but the fact that he was a real person that I was sympathetic to made it all, all of his mistakes and his grief at the end when he figured out that he had, messed up, that that was not the way to go. And in so many books that you read, that just, it makes it personal. It personalizes it. And I need personally, in my black and white way, I need redemption in books that I read. And I figured that out in our book club with Kyle Yonke and Weathering Heights, which he loves and which I did not like at all because I didn't feel like there were any characters that were redeemed at all. Uh, it felt very 
very black to me and very dark. And so I need that. But hold on, just Wuthering Heights, he made a compelling case that there was redemption, at least for one character in there, I believe. Who? I don't remember. I think this is just proof that (laughs) Jane Eyre is better. That's all there is to it. Well, then it's a lot clearer. Jane Eyre's uh, on my list to reread. I did read Jane Eyre when I was much younger. But, but for our I listeners, were. contact Kyle if you want to understand <laughs> Weathering Heights. That's right. Maybe you should do a co- podcast on Weathering Heights, but there's no redemption there. Sounds depressing. <laughs> so you guys have mentioned that one reason a book might be a great book is because it endures. That's something you said. And then Paul and Martin both kind of articulated that a, a great book could be a great book because it resonates with the, the the human soul. And I think that that's true. What are ways that great books actually achieve that? So you started going down this road with talking about redemption. And just one example I would think of is that indelible characters are sometimes, I think, ways that great books um, become great books is that a character like Rosalind from As You Like It is just an indelible person. Like there's only one Rosalind in all of literature. And Mm. what are other ways that great books achieve great book status? No, that's a hard question. Um, I mean, sometimes you can't say, I I mean, Tanya just mentioned Jane Eyre. I, I read Jane Eyre last year and I was just, uh, I was hypnotized by that book for some reason. Um, whereas I, I'm, I'm with you on Wuthering <laughs> Heights too. Uh, the uh, but I, I read Jane Eyre and I, I was so immersed in what was going on. It was so real to me. I was I so identified with this woman in the middle of the 19th century who was over 150 years away from me. I mean, that's, that's the other thing about great books is they speak across the ages. Mm. Yes. Um, you know, there's books that you read now particularly and interest in them won't last long because we're changing so fast, but great books are the ones that are, are going to be there no matter how many changes uh, come to us. As long as we're human beings, will appreciate those books. And, and I'm not, that's not answering your question. I don't know. I, I don't know how you. I think it is. I think you, you just pointed out one, one way that it happens is that the book speaks across the ages in terms, like very specifically to your experience through connecting you to this person, yeah. this Jane, who's very well, it's got to be unique. human nature. Yeah. It's just well, got to be. A great book really uh, is, is a way to, uh, uh, to confirm that in fact, human nature does not change mm-hmm. that, that, uh, you know, people today believe that it does. Uh, we're, we're all uh, going to be members of the metaverse. I hear, I hear pretty soon. Um, we're not changing. Um, those new things, these new innovations, they will not last, but, you know, long after all this, all of our technology is gone, we will still have the Bible, and we will still have Shakespeare, and we will still have Jane Eyre because our human nature remains always the same. I would like to point out that when I started working here, Martin made a comment to me about not reading anything whose author has not been dead for over 50 years. (laughs) And I have always regretted, there's like one or two exceptions, but other than that, I have regretted ever reading something that is not as old as that. And I think, and I'm sitting here, I was wondering why that was. And I think a part of it is if it's a narrative form, right? For me to read about somebody in an English manner 200 years ago, 
I've got no aspirations to that. There's no path to me for that. I can't get jealous about them being in English manner or, <laughs> you know, how am I going to get there? Or if somebody's in, you know, uh, in squalor, right? The Prince and the Popper. I mean, right. Like there's a, there's a, there's a distance that allows me to put myself in either person's shoes without my cultural context getting in the way. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Well, and, and it, that's, you know, the being 50 years old or 100 years old or whatever you set that, that number as is not a criterion for it being a great book. It's just a confirmation right. Right. that it's a good candidate. If, it's, if it has re retained interest for that long, then it's something you need to look at to say, well, there must be something to this. But it doesn't make it a great book. It's just a way of kind of filtering right. out. But if you spend that. all your time reading new books— mm -hmm you don't have time to go back to those things that have stood the test of time, mm -hmm. you know? And, 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 and there's so much, there's yeah. so much And the good, book, the good contemporary books are usually written by people who read the great books. Right. And I don't, I mean, you said that you, I don't, was it in this podcast? <clears throat> I don't even remember, but we were talking about, do you put a book down that you have oh, started and yeah. haven't finished? So you're on the third time with Dante. Mm -hmm. I'm on the first. I haven't put it down, but I've slowed down um, because it's not really holding my interest, though I feel like I need to read it. So <laughs> because it's a great book. So um it's a book, though, when I when I do have a great book, I tend to get through it because mm -hmm. I know that it's been there and that there is something worthy in there to find. And I feel like maybe I won't find it till the last page, well, but I need to find it. But a contemporary book that's not good, I will drop after 100 pages. Sure. I do. I will make myself read 50 to 100 pages just to give it a shot. But then mm -hmm. I don't feel bad at all putting it down. But if I put Dante down, then I, then I feel like I've failed. Sure. Well, and one way of trying to determine whether a book is great is by being able to rely on some thinker who you know is great mm. and seeing what they think about it. Right. Um, if you look at, you know, like, you say, take Dante, for example, and you see what T.S. Eliot said about Dante and how, how Dante influenced other writers, then you know there's something right. there. Right. Or you have a thinker, I find always, I, I, I can only think of, I can't really think of anything where Chesterton has guided me wrong. Mm. Uh, I can always count on Chesterton for a good judgment of, of anything, including what books really are great. Yeah. Uh, there, there's only one instance and, you know, he looked at all the writers of his time and was answering the question, well, which authors will, will we still be reading in a hundred years? And he said, uh, Dickens and Thornton Wilder. Is, is Thornton Wilder or um, uh, who wrote Vanity Fair? I'm sorry, I'm blanking. Oh, Thackeray. Thackeray. Uh, Thackeray. Now, Thackeray has not stood as much. Oh, uh, yes, it I has. guess he's, I mean, it's he's just still one. Read, it's but, just Vanity right. Fair. But, but, but Dickens, my gosh. I mean, yeah. uh, that he will, he's for the ages. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so find a thinker who you trust yep. uh, and to, to, to indicate to you whether something's worth reading. Yeah. Reading backwards and reading forwards through books. I, one of my favorite things to do is to read great authors, reflections on Shakespeare. So Auden mm -hmm. has some awesome yes. essays on like the Merchant of Venice, for instance. Yes. I agree with that. Yes. So anything to add in terms of what can make a book a classic? So for instance, what about these books like Sir Gawain and the Green Knight or, or Beowulf, considered great books. But when you read them, 
A little bit of a slog. What makes one of those book a a great book? But was it a slog to the middle eight to the medieval uh, people that read it? They had fewer choices. I don't um, think so. <laughs> is a slog. I think yeah, you know, books can be considered great also not just because of their quality but their historical significance and how they influenced later books. So, and I think that's probably mm-hmm. the case with Beowulf and. Uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is because they're they're the earliest uh, English works, you know, and they they influence so much that came after. And I think they're they're worth because of that they're worth studying. But like Treasure Island, yeah, we do Treasure Island. It's an adventure story. There's nothing challenging in that really for the students, but because it influenced so much else, it's just so good for the students to have the illusions and the. Right. And just because a book doesn't Connection. have... I was thinking about this lately. Just because a book doesn't have some uh, universal theological point, it, uh, it doesn't mean it's not a, not a great book or a really good book anyway. Uh, you know, Stevenson was a master storyteller. Right. There is something about the skill at telling a story which is important above and beyond any theme it might have. I think it's worth reading because it's just a flat out good story. Well, and let's also remember like how much work we do to prepare a student to be able to read the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. And we don't really prepare students in an explicit way to be able to read the Canterbury Tales or Sir Gawain or whatever it is. Like we're not, we don't have um, the, the, the amount of on-ramp to those things and nor as, as adults, do we get that, to be able to make that first read of that work enjoyable. And so, again, enjoyment does not make a book great. But, um, you know, there, there, are, there are tremendous lessons in Beowulf, right? That, I mean, but, it, you know, it's, and it's this intersection of pagan and Christian cultures. And, you know, again, for the historical value, but there's also a lot going on there to talk about and to, to – uh, deal with. And it is an exciting adventure story. True. But well, I do think we prepare our students for Sir Gawain because we do King Arthur. We oh, read, you sure. know, the King James version that we use all through lower school helps them be ready for that medieval verse. Yeah. Sorry. No, okay. it's great. I stand corrected on that. But, but I, but I agree about Beowulf. We have, what do we do? Yeah. Well, and the Canterbury Tales, I mean, we are preparing and them in Canterbury. some way with, with Shakespeare and reading that, that mm-hmm. older, that older English but um it's still you know, hard but we it's haven't hard. we haven't read a retelling like we read the trojan war right you know that sort of You're we right. haven't we haven't dug into danish mythology stuff like that that's right and i think getting back to my original question you guys bring out a few more things here that speak to what can make something a classic indelible characters the historical originality the way that it connected and was popular in its original time the way it's influenced later works the intricacy of the plot the, you know, the specificity and the excellence of the storytelling, all of those things seem to work hand in hand to elevate certain books to the but status the of great books. the main thing is really the universality that they they all speak to human nature in a way that remains true. Yeah. I think I've come all the way around to that. It's good for your soul. <laughs> so I want to pivot and ask each of you a question that I already oh, asked man. Tanya before oh, the podcast, but I'm going to ask you again on, okay. on air because I liked your answer. When was the first time that you were reading an old book, if you recall, that you were like, 
I like this. I, I enjoy this. Do you remember what the book was and what was that experience like? Did you have to overcome your misconceptions about old books or were you eager to tackle a great book? So Martin, what about you? What was your experience with the great books at first? Well, at first, you know, you find them hard. It, it's it's like anything else. It's like playing a sport or learning a game or you've you got to get used to it. you got to know the rules. you got to know how it works. And I, I mean, now I don't have any trouble picking up uh, a great, you know, I mentioned Jane Eyre. You know, I had no, I had no trouble getting into Jane Eyre or understanding what the author was saying or um, I just, it's, 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 it's easy now. Um, like swimming or something, you know, you, you get in there, you've never done it before. You, they, you thrown in the pool. That's the way I was taught to swim is somebody threw me in the pool uh, <laughs> and, and, and you drown, but, but you, you gotta, you gotta learn some things, but once you do, then you can just dive in and, and enjoy it. And it's the same as with, with great literature. It's, it's not, people think they have this fear almost of great literature. That's something that's, that's always is hard. It's not always hard. Sometimes it's hard, but once you get used to it, the more you get used to it, the easier it is. Yeah. What about you, Tanya? I had a terrible public school education, and so we didn't read any great books. I think we may have read one Shakespeare play. I don't even remember what it was, but um, but it was really, for me, college. And I know I read some Dickens in high school. I read Jane Austen just on my own. I'm not sure where I got them or how. But I did know I liked good literature, and I loved to read. I always loved to read. I just didn't read good things. But when in college, my English teachers really just turned me on to it, and and then I, you know, I decided to major in English, and so I spent all those years reading all that great literature that I had not read, and then later on, my, um, I read the things my children read that I hadn't gotten to. So, and now finally on Dante. But um, but as far as the first really good book that I read, I have no idea what that is. I have a feeling it might, it was either Pride and Prejudice or a Dickens book, mm. but I don't, I don't know. I'm, I don't remember. How about, what did you read? Well, I remember two little very specific experiences. One was I took a summer Shakespeare class where we read five plays in three weeks. Is this in high school or in college? college? College. And up to that point, I would have told you I had no use for Shakespeare at all. And the professor just led us very skillfully into and out of each of those plays. And yes. I just fell in love with... I had a whole year of Shakespeare in college that we went through every single play. Yeah. It was wonderful. But without the professor, I would have been lost. Right. I didn't have the background that I needed to do that without him. So thank you to our college professors. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I bet Paul's was earlier. My my second experience was with Washington Irving's um, Rip Van Winkle. Oh, yeah. That's oh, good. Which yes. is a story that I had always kind of been familiar with, but I remember reading it in college and just finding it so hilarious <laughs> and just being like, books are great. This is so funny. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> um. But Tanya, you're right. My experience was significantly earlier. My my mom gave me a, uh, the the um, great illustrated classics, abridged versions. Oh, I used to read those too. Oh my gosh, they were amazing. And now nephews, nieces, and nephews are reading them, and it's great. 
Um, I, at one point Sarah was at a used bookstore and she was like, she sent me a picture. I said, buy them all. Um, because it was a good diet. I mean, in, in a way we don't like abridged stuff, but it was like, I was eight or nine years old. It's an and introduction. I would just, yeah. I would just devour these things. Mm-hmm. And, um, the funny part was, so then when I went off to boarding school, when I was 12 years old, the priest gave us a list of, I think it was like 40 books and they were books that you could read in your free times and so if, if you, like, that was the approved list. If you were going to read a book outside of class time when you had some free time, here were 40 books. And what he asked you to do when you came in was check off any that you've read and, you know, and then you can read the others. Well, I like checked off almost the entire because list. Because of the great illustrated And he was like, classics. there's no way. And so he's <laughs> like, you know, start from the beginning. And, um, but because I knew the stories, even though they were harder That's to read, right. I loved them. I remember reading, Martin and I were just talking about Ivanhoe. I remember reading Ivanhoe like in eighth, eighth or ninth grade, oh, just wow. in my free time, just because I was used to reading that sort of thing. And I think I already knew the story and I loved the time period. Right. Um, and so that was just sort of my, my sort of steady diet. To the point where, I mean, The Count of Monte Cristo was an escape for me when I first read it in French. Was It was, I like to read good books and I want to work on my French. And so I'll read The Count of Monte Cristo. Like that was, that was how I got caught up in it um, when I was like 18 or 19. Were the 40 books, were they good books? Were they? Oh, they were all great books. Yeah. They were, they were all great books. Um, you know, supposed to be, you know, something around high school age mm-hmm. um, or at least understandable by high schoolers. Um, you know, no, they were all. They, I mean, it was a good selection. And when you're in a bubble and you can't read anything else, you know, I mean, that's, uh, you know, and to a degree, that's what my parents cultivated in a homeschool, you know, where they wanted to make sure they had control over what we read. And so that set me up on that trajectory. And, you know, yeah. when you have a list of 40 books, that's all you get to read, you know. So we only have a few minutes left and I want to ask you all one more question, but it may take you a second to think about it. If you had to recommend someone read one great book, it doesn't have to be the best, but just a great book, what is that book? And a couple of sentences, why? I think it depends on the age of the person you're asking. What if it was me? If I were going to recommend one great book to you? Yes. The book that always comes to mind that I tell people they should read, it's not a great book yet because it's too young. So I have to rethink. But I honestly. What, what book is this? Yeah, what book? It would be Jaber Crow. Oh, I mean, that to oh, me yeah. is. That's, the that's book already that a great is, book. It's just full mm-hmm. of wisdom that I just didn't recognize was there the first. Jaber Crow by Wendell Berry. In case everyone yes. 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 Um, but as far. Okay. So let me think about something that is would be really considered a great book. Do you have yours? Mm-hmm. Go for it. <laughs> I have to think. Well, I've already said it. I mean, Anna Karenina. Mm. And why? Because um, Tolstoy, because it's the best novel by the best novelist. Um, it is, it's got everything in it. He, he's, Tolstoy, it's, it's, it's as if it's effortless for him to create this world that is totally believable and to create characters who are real and and to tell a story that is utterly compelling. I mean, he just, he has it all. And it is long, but as people who, you know, if you get to the end, you know, I, I hear, it, hear it about also War and Peace. You get to the end and it's like it was not long enough. 
Paul? Um, because Martin went long. I mean, normally I would say the Count of Monte Cristo, which you already discussed, and you know, let's just move on from there. Um, something short, and I don't know, this is older than Jaber Crow, but I don't know that it's hit the canon yet, is The End of the Affair. Um, because You're on a Graham Green kick. I am totally on a Graham Green kick. Um, but I read that like a year ago or something. But it was, I mean, speaking universally, I think I think it does that. Um, and it, it absolutely fascinated me about how God can bring good out of absolute evil. Um, that, that, you know, and to have an, um, was it an atheist convert an atheist preacher converts the lady to, to Christianity. Like it's, it's hysterical at the same time. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, it's, I, your question, because because it's sort of like it's just open ended. Like who? It, the question. I, I'm struggling whether the person I'm recommending this to can stomach a 1,200 page novel, right? If you can't stomach that, you can go shorter. But the question is, like, I would absolutely recommend the Other in the Odyssey. But do you have the background to be able to to get into mm-hmm. this? And and again, like we talked about this in intellectual life, but pick this up and then go talk to somebody about mm-hmm. it. Right. Like somebody that's read it so that you can you can see the things that you're missing as you read it. I think that's important. Right, right. But but I, I would also say that um something like The End of the Affair, which I love as a book, but it's I you know, Graham Greene and and um uh, Evelyn Wall, who wrote *Brideshead Revisited*, and John Le Carre, the the spy novelist, but they they they're all writing in this style that is kind of hard to get into. Whereas, although *Anna Karenina* is long, it's fairly easy to read, yeah. except for yeah. like Short the chapters. six yeah. different names for every individual. That's true. <laughs> On the, not he's he's not as yes. bad. As, <laughs> right? I, I mean, yes. I think Dostoevsky is much worse than that. In 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 *Anna Karenina*, it, it's much more manageable. It's very. Well, and it also depends to Russian on your cold. translation. Your translation is key mm-hmm. to be successful yes. in that. But I mean, you're right. But the, but the thing is, is which great book? I mean, you, talk, you look at Shakespeare. You look at um, Dickens. You look at uh, Jane Austen. Everybody's got their way of writing mm-hmm. that for some mm-hmm. people it's going to be easy to read and some people it's going to be hard to read. Yeah. And so that's where, you know, pick it up. You, it may be, it may be a trial and a tribulation to get through it. George Eliot. Hopefully you get, well, well and yeah, some, I'll, some books I'm and I'll, I'll, I want to back to Dickens for a second here because uh, after Tolstoy, I think Dickens is the greatest novelist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would recommend people who are not familiar with Dickens have not read him. Cause I, tr- I tried to read my kids, uh, Nicholas Nickleby, oh. and they hated it. And so every time that somebody was doing something they shouldn't, I threatened to read him Nicholas Nickleby. Um, but but um, but it rec- I think it's to best to start Dickens as a modern American person by listening to a good reader mm. of Dickens and an audible mm. version, an audio version, and and then it will come to life for you. Mm. Natanya, did you think of one? <laughs> yeah, we spent all this one time. book. I, I, I'm with Paul. I think it really depends on who I'm recommending it sure. to. So mm-hmm. if I were recommending a book to you, I mean, I would recommend any Dickens, any, but my favorite is Bleak House. <laughs> um, if I thought you were interested in, I know it's really big, but it, I don't know why I liked uh, it, it is, so it much. It's just funny. Yeah. Um, I would probably just give you a list. Yeah. Uh, I, mean, I love George Eliot. I mm-hmm. any kind of British lit is really going to be my first choice, not Russian. Yeah, a, a list is actually a great idea because then you can look through and go like, "Oh, that appeals to me." 
I'll go read that and you get started, right? right? Like you do need to read those books that don't appeal to you eventually, but sometimes just getting the ball rolling on reading those good books. Especially yep. an author, like what I recommend that somebody who hasn't read George Eliot start with Daniel Deronda? Absolutely no. not. <laughs> I would suggest Silas Marner. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> this is another good way. If you if you haven't read great books um, and you, you need a way to enter that world is find a book by a great author that is a short book. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're going to read Tolstoy, um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that because this novels were really great. But like, um, you know, I wouldn't read Bleak House if I was starting. That's Dickens. right. I would read Hard Times. It's a right. lot shorter. Hard Times, Oliver yeah. Twist. Right. John Steinbeck. Um, oh, read yeah. The, the Grapes Pearl. of Breath. Uh, Hemingway. Read um, Old Man in the Sea. Mm-hmm. These are I don't short like books. Hemingway. Oh, Steinbeck of Mice and Men. I just finished that. Yeah. We need to talk about that. Yeah. I don't and know that I've read of Mice and Men. Uh, uh, I, can you can you can you say what you told me yesterday about the where. He George. can't remember what he told oh, you. Well, no, it's, it's okay. I was telling him I grew up with, you know, we, we watched cartoons, right? When we were young and, and it was the, the Bugs Bunny cartoons. Those, if you were to watch those now, kids wouldn't understand half of what's going on. They find the, the humor, immediate humor funny, but they're playing off of old movies. There's Humphrey Bogart from, um, I forget which movie it was. Uh, Buddy, can you spare a dime? He's right out of a movie. Uh, Jekyll, Doctor Jekyll, Mister Hyde. I knew from a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Uh, all those things, and there was a yeah, there was a character uh, uh, in uh, in of mice and men who's also I I I I knew the character before I knew the book from Bugs I, Bunny. Yeah, in a Bugs Bunny cartoon. I mean, you know, <laughs> all those old Warner Brother cartoons because they were actually for adults. They were they were what you saw in the intermission right. in a movie, mm-hmm. and so they're all bartering on this cultural hmm. knowledge that everybody had at that time. And it had to do with literature that they hmm. were reading that we're not anymore. Grapes of Wrath. Maybe I'll, have you read The Grapes of Wrath? I haven't. It's okay. Very, the very Grapes very of good. Wrath is we'll, we'll what I'm together, recommending. Well, here's my two. And you'll have to tell me if you guys agree that the first one, the shorter one for the, you know, the person who's trying to get in, if you agree, this is a classic. Uh, the Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. I, that is one of my favorite all-time books. It is, I have, I have, there's more quotes that I have, yes. have marked. The villain book. is yes. the most quotable person yes, in literature. I think so. Yes. I, that is the creepiest book to me. <laughs> it really creeps but it, but me it is. Out. It's got this metaphysical aspect to yeah. it. He's the, the, mm-hmm. This picture of Dorian Gray is the condition of his soul. Yep. I know. I mean, it's And it's, it's just amazing. creepy. And a great painting in the Chicago Art Institute that to go along with it, if you are up there. Second, Paradise Lost by John Milton. Mm. Um, often overlooked in the conversations about the epics, but it's some of the most beautiful poetry in the English language. But that also, you know, honestly, if you're going to read Paradise Lost, you need to read Iliad Odyssey first mm-hmm. and take the journey through the epics. But what he does, framing Christianity um, and Protestantism specifically after the epics is, I think, beautiful and profound. Mm-hmm. I don't think I could read Paradise Lost without help. Perhaps. There's preface to Paradise Lost by C.S. Lewis for you. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and as we recommend long poems, it's good to uh, read uh, some short poems first. Um, we, we, don't, we don't teach enough poetry. We don't read enough poetry. That book by uh, Perrine, I think, called Sound and Sense. Hmm. Uh, you can just take that book. It's got a great selection of poetry, and it tells you how it works. Hmm. And and uh, so I I think uh, I think you need a little experience with poetry before you attempt Milton. It's a great great recommendation. All right, well I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you all for having it, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. You can find us on Spotify, 
Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like this episode, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit memoriapress.com. To connect with us, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.